Well, we're continuing today in our series that we've called Story Time, as we've looked at some of the big picture stories, big narratives of the Old Testament in particular. And um, skipping our way through, we've met different kind of big personalities. Last week, we, we watched Goliath fall to David's sling and stone, and we were reminded uh, you know, that we need to keep our eyes on the Lord. And not on the Giants, although I'm not talking about the San Francisco Giants, you can watch them. Keep your eyes on them. Keep your eye on the San Jose Sharks, too, by the way. They defeated the Kings in the first round of the NHL playoffs. It's very important that you know that, because it's exciting. That's so cool. Uh, but we want to keep our eyes on the Lord, not on those problems that are a distraction to us. And then we also talked about, you know, realizing that sometimes when you take out that one big giant, that one big problem in your life, so often many other you know, problems kind of are taken care of in the process. Well, that was talking about David and Goliath last week. I'm going to show you this timeline picture we've been showing every week here about Israel's development. We talked about how they were founded by Abraham and the promise he received from God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's Israel, his sons, one of whom is Joseph, who's in Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt and they cried out to God. God sent them a deliverer. The deliverer's name was Moses. Moses miraculously led them out of Egypt. And now they're, they're heading for the promised land, which would be modern day Israel. But they get scared and they stop right on the threshold. And God says, fine, I'll make you wait. And your kids can go in. And so they wandered around for 40 years. But finally, a man named Joshua, who was Moses' uh, personal assistant, he, uh, he led them in. And so it's kind of the period of conquest as they uh, occupied cities they had not built and farms they had not planted. It's a wonderful story. Uh, and then that kind of led to a season of a bit, kind of a bit of a chaotic period for for Israel, led by a series of judges. And so the, you can read about that in the book of the Bible called Judges. From then they cried out to God, they cried out to their, their leader, Samuel, and says, we want a king. And so they, they were given a king. The first king was Saul, followed by David. David uh, was then followed by his son Solomon. That was the kingdom's period. Well, today we've moved into the divided kingdom period of Israel. So that's, that's what we're going to see from now. Following Solomon, the, the one who took Solomon's son was Rehoboam. And there was a, a kind of a competing guy named Jeroboam. It gets a little confusing sometimes. But under these two, the kingdom split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And we'll talk a little bit about more of that in a moment. The, the, the northern kingdom was generally led by pretty terrible kings, honestly, really, really evil uh, people. And the southern kingdom of Judah, you know, did a little bit better. The Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom. And, and um, in fact, Morgan, can you jump ahead to that map? We're going to show it later. But if you don't mind jumping ahead to that map, we'll just do this right now. So you've got the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem and the temple are in the southern kingdom, and so they tend to be a little bit more faithful overall, whereas the, the northern kingdom was just despotic. It was it was terrible um, place. And uh, both kingdoms eventually fell at Israel permanently, the ten northern tribes, and Judah was then later restored. But um, that kind of gives you a bit of a lay of the land. So we'll come back to that map in a moment. As you're finding 1 Kings chapter 18, I want to ask you a question, though, as, and it's this, that have you ever found yourself caught between somewhat opposing parties, competitive parties, you know, trying to keep both sides happy and then 
pleasing neither side. I don't know if that's happened to you. Often happens in, in couples, particularly newly married couples, when you know the husband or wife is, is trying to please their new spouse and trying to keep mom or dad happy on the other side. And there's this, they kind of really feel split between the two and, and trying to keep happy. And then no one's happy and everybody's miserable. It's a pretty tough place to be. Sometimes in life, we, we really try hard to, to walk two sides of the same fence. Imagine it, you know, that, that image, you know, you're walking along a path and there's a fence here and then you see the grass is greener on that side. And so you, you think, well, I want to be on that side of the fence. You walk on that side and then you realize, well, the path was smoother on that side and then you walk on this side. And but yeah, but the grass is greener. And the only way you can really be on both sides at the same time is to just straddle the fence. But it's really hard to walk and straddle a fence at the same time. So you end up just sitting there and going nowhere. It's a pretty miserable place to be. But at some point, you're going to have to choose which side will you be on. And this is exactly where the nation of Israel has arrived in this passage today. They claim to be God-fearing, God-worshippers, and yet they actively worshipped pagan gods, the Baals and others. So, you know, they've got this kind of two-sided thing going on. And they were led by a king at this time named Ahab, who was as wicked as they come. And he was greedy and murderous and fully committed to the satanic worship of Baal. And I say that because their worship was so destructive, even included um, sacrifices of children, uh, included um, just terrible things. And so... uh, you know, that's kind of the scenario and the picture that they've arrived to. So we want to go to 1 Kings chapter 18. You've got a view there, a picture that we took last year in from Mount Carmel. So you can imagine that's the scenario. We're, at, we're standing on Carmel. What we're about to read may have taken place on that plateau area just below us. And then that out there is called the Jezreel Valley, also sometimes called the Armageddon Valley. So those some of you students of Scripture will find that. Interesting. Let's stand together as we read 1 Kings chapter 18, starting at verse 17. First Kings 18. King Ahab has been looking for the prophet Elijah, and he finds him. We're going to pick it up in the middle of a paragraph there. 1 Kings 18, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, he exclaimed, So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now, summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. Literally, your translation might say, who uh, eat at the table. That's a, a euphemistic way of saying they were on payroll. So they're, they're being supported by the queen uh, Jezebel. She's the evil queen wife of Ahab. Verse 20. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Now, bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. And then 
call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Now, verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls, prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. He's really making it easy as possible. They're going to have no excuse. Well, you 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 took the better bull or anything. He's just like, hey, it's you guys get preferred treatment here. Verse 26. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps, perhaps he is daydreaming or he has gone to the bathroom. Actually, says that. I mean, he's just relieving himself in the NLT. But it's a euphemistic way of saying he's, he's at the toilet. Or maybe he's away on a trip. Or he's asleep and needs to be wakened. And so, they shouted louder. And following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. But still, there was no sound. No reply. No response. Verse 30. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. And they all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel. And he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around the altar deep enough to hold about three gallons. So it's not a big, deep trench as you may have visualized in the past. It's a rather shallow uh, trench, but it's a bit of a, maybe more like a swale around the altar. Phil, um, he piled wood on the altar, cut the bowl into pieces and laid the pieces on the wood. And then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. Verse 34 says, after they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. That's with the water. And so they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have brought them back to yourself. Verse 38. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and they cried out, The Lord, He is God! Yes, the Lord is God! And Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. Let's be seated together. Let me give you uh, just a little backstory. I've got one more picture here to show you. This is uh, a view of Carmel. I did not take that picture. Uh, we didn't think to take a picture of the mountain. We just thought to take a picture from the mountain. But that's, that's Mount Carmel today. And then let me show you that map one more time. The red circle off to the left, that's, that's Mount Carmel up on that horn. 
there of Israel. All right. So you get a kind of a sense of the lay of the land. All right. Now, a little bit of backstory. Last week we met David who would become king after Saul. And this event that we just read takes place about a hundred years after David's uh, would have been David's inauguration. After the reign of David's son Solomon, like we said, the kingdom split into the northern and southern kingdoms. So you, this is important in biblical history and reading the Bible. You need to understand that it went from one kingdom to two kingdoms. Israel to the north, ten northern tribes, and Judah to the south, two southern tribes. It gets a little confusing because sometimes Judah in the south is also called Israel. Sometimes the whole thing is called Israel. But it's, it's good to know Israel in the north. Jude in the south. If it helps, think alphabetically. I comes before J. Go from north to south. I, whatever mnemonic device you need. That's important for, for us to memorize um, these kind of details. And then you've got Ahab, the king. He's the seventh king of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. Seventh since it split. And like I said, wicked through and through. And then getting up into Ahab's business is this prophet Elijah. Elijah was from a remote part of the kingdom, well to the, uh, to the east of the Jordan River. And we really don't know anything about Elijah. And we just know that he was from a, a town called Tishbe. So he's called Elijah the Tishbite. That's it. That's how he's identified. That's all we know. Uh, we do know that he's a powerful prophet. That he was highly regarded uh, forever after and even still today. So he's a... He's a, the, a you know, one of the best. He's a great man of God in the Old Testament. But the New Testament says something really surprising about Elijah and how it, that relates to us. I'm just going to have it up on the screen there. James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18 talks about Elijah in the context of prayer, the context of, of, of praying for the sick, and context of praying with faith. It says this, Elijah was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. It's as though James is saying the kind of stuff Elijah did, that's meant to be normal. He, he was an ordinary guy and you're ordinary people and God works through ordinary people. So you're it. You're it. So, it's meant to be an encouragement to us. But let's not kid ourselves. Elijah had guts. This guy was courageous in every way. And he was fed up with the spiritual condition of his, of his nation. And so, with this courage, he, he confronted the king. And first, he prophesied a drought. And if you go back in chapter 17, the very beginning, you can see that the Lord tells him to go talk to Ahab. And he says, there's going to be a drought. There's going to be no rain. You're just, everything's going to dry up. And, and then he, you know, just if Elijah kind of hides away while this is happening. And um, Ahab is, you know, very upset about it. And in fact, the reason we, we have this confrontation, the reason Ahab finds Elijah is that uh, Ahab has taken his, his assistant and they said, we've got to find some water for the cattle. Our livestock are going to die. Let's go search for water somewhere. And so in that process of searching, his assistant um, finds uh, Elijah and says, oh, man, uh, Ahab's looking for you. And that's they could get them together. And that's how that happens. And that's why Elijah meets 
I mean, Ahab meets Elijah and says, oh, hey, you're the big troublemaker. You caused this drought. And Elijah says, no, you caused this drought because you're so wicked. So that's what's what's going on with those two uh, people. And now Elijah, who said, I've had enough of this sinfulness of this nation. I've had enough of these divided loyalties. It's time for a showdown with the prophets. And that's what happens. But the challenge isn't even so much for uh, Ahab himself as it is for all the people. You really see it there in verses 20 and 21, if you have your Bible still open. It says, Ahab, verse 20, Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. And Elijah stood in front of them, the people, and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. The people were silent. Wouldn't even respond. And the question is, how much longer will you waver between the Lord and Baal? They couldn't make up their mind. Would they trust God or would they trust idols? Would would they depend on God for rain and crops or would they expect Baal, the so-called fertility God? Would they expect this Baal to provide the crops and the rain and and so on? Would they would they worship God as with the appointed you know celebration festivals, which are really positive, enthusiastic experiences and events? Or would they worship Baal with, with what was normal for them, frenzies of sex and blood and self-harm? It's always the devil's way. The devil's way is always to steal, kill, and destroy. He's, that's what he's up to. And that was the challenge. And I, I would say the question is the same for us today. Are we wavering? Are you wavering? Now, you know if you are or not. But my I could ask it this way. Does your relationship with the Lord guide your life? Does your relationship with God guide your life, your life decisions, your approach, your worldview, your perspective? Or does it you just kind of fit it in occasionally when it's convenient? You know, would your calendar or your bank statement, would those things reveal what's really important to you? And we're not perfect, at least I'm not, and never will be, but are we straddling the fence or have we chosen a side? How long will you waver, Elijah asks. It's not the first time the Israelite people have been challenged in this way. Hundreds of years earlier, after they'd settled into the land, at the end of his life, Joshua really put it out for them. In uh, Joshua chapter 24, right near the end, it says this. This is Joshua speaking to to the assembled people. He says, so fear the Lord. And serve him wholeheartedly. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. It's Joshua speaking. And my question is, just how, how about us? How about me and you? Have, have you resolved to trust in Jesus or are you wavering? And so the showdown began first with the Baal prophets. As we said, they... You know, the more frantic they got, the sillier they looked, hobbling and dancing around. It's interesting that the word uh, that describes their dancing is the same word that Elijah uses to say, how long will you hobble around on this? And it may be a reference to this crazy dance they had. And, and the, on it goes, the more sarcastic Elijah gets with them. And he's just digging at them. Yeah, he's, he's probably on a trip. He's probably sleeping. He's in the bathroom. And, and it's just sort of, just egging them on and they fall for it, which is the most amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, it probably is. Yeah, that's what I want to worship. I want to worship a God who gets caught in the bathroom. You know, it's just so 
it's ridiculous and funny and sad all at the same time. And so uh, Elijah then gets his turn. Verse 30 uh, gives us an idea of just how bad things had gotten. Elijah called to the people, come over here. And they all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He's stacking out the stones and there's 12 stones that he selected. And we're told right in the text that represent the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes. The renewal of this moment is going to start with altar repair. See, an altar represents the place of worship. For the Jews, the proper place of worship was at the temple in Jerusalem. But it was not uncommon to set up worship altars or dedication altars in other places as well. But this one had even been neglected, even torn down. These people had not been down to Jerusalem probably in their entire lives. The, the, um, when, when the kingdom did split, led by this Jeroboam, and he fled and went north, and he says, come on, we're, we're going to do our own thing. He, he, his concern was, now what if the people who are now loyal to me, what if they go down to Jerusalem, to the temple for their festivals? They might not remain loyal to me. How am I going to prevent this? So Jeroboam had a plan. He's, he created two worship centers, one of the very south of Israel and one of the very north of Israel. If you go there today, it's a place called Tel Dan. And you can still see remnants of that whole worship complex. They've rebuilt, sort of kind of reestablished what the altar would have looked like. Jeroboam made copies of the Jerusalem uh, altar and placed it in, in his kingdom in two places. But he, he also set up calves to worship, you know, animals to worship. And it was pagan sacrifices. So he, he kind of took the undergirdings of, of, of the faith, but laid on it pagan worship. But that was his means of keeping the people from going down to Jerusalem and potentially becoming disloyal to him. And in fact, there's a great story that those who were the many of the Levites and the workers who were faithful to God left the northern kingdom and they moved to the southern kingdom so that they could be near the proper worship. Anyway, here's my question for you. Does your altar need repair? Does your altar need repair? Imagine that I were to invite you over for dinner and, uh, you know, I just say, hey, you know, we're going to have some tri-tip and baked potatoes and salad and fresh strawberry pie for dessert. And it's, it's just going to be amazing. And, and you're excited and you show up on time and, and uh, you discover there's a problem. You walk in the door and it's, you don't... You don't smell any tri-tip. You don't smell the baked potatoes. You don't see strawberry pie. You, you know that I'm a great cook. Let's believe that I'm a great cook. Alright. I have the best recipes. Okay, I'm married to a great cook. Okay. And she has the best recipes. And we have all the ingredients. But you discover that I don't have anything to cook on. There's no stove in the house. There's no barbecue. There's not even a, a microwave. There's no fridge to hold even the salad ingredients. It's just all kind of piled up there on the counter. There's no means to serve you the meal. Well, that's Israel's condition. The very means, the very method of worship was broken down. And I think in the same way, there's times in our lives when we let the altar break down, that, that method of worship break down in our lives. I'm not talking about a physical altar in our case, but I'm talking about routine and consistency in your spiritual life. Do you have that? Do you have some means to that? Do you, do you have that place of worship in your life? Does your altar need repair? I was telling some guys recently, like, for some reason, this 
last this spring has been the toughest time for me in, ye- in many years. I really have struggled with consistency in my devotional life. It's not been a problem for a long time. But we were away, we did a bit of traveling, and the schedule got disrupted, and we had a hard time kind of getting back into a super consistent routine. The altar sometimes needs a little repair. Now, it also helps to have some Elijahs in your life to help you do that. I know we're heading into the summer season, but this fall, um, I... I just urge you, get into a connection group or start one, lead one. I'll help, you know, Stephen will help you with that. Um, or men, I still do a 6.30 uh, Thursday morning meeting here where we do our devotions together, we pray together uh, and head out for the day. It, these are great things. It's, it's not that small groups and devotional times kind of somehow make you spiritual. It's just elements of a repaired altar to help you in your worship. And then challenge you to do that. Because your altar needs some repair. But here we have Elijah. He, he repairs and builds out this altar again. He gets the wood on there. He slaughters the bull for the sacrifice. And then all the water that gets poured on there. Just to show you that he's not up to any tricks. You know, fire's going to fall. <clears throat> it's going to be a miracle. And then we got some great details in this passage. And I think these details really point to the love and grace of God. Of course, the 12 stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then with regards to the bull, I think it's probably worth noting that the first time that a bull is mentioned in sacrifice in the Old Testament is when Moses dedicated Aaron and Aaron's sons for the priesthood. That's the first time a bull sacrifice is mentioned. It's a consecration. Consecration means to set apart. It's a consecration offering. It's as though... It's as though Elijah's now setting apart, he's consecrating the whole nation of Israel to be God's people, to be God's essentially priesthood for the world. Um, and so we, we could see that bull as that kind of sacrifice. And then you've got all this water that's, that's poured on. Water is always in the Bible symbolic of cleansing, of washing, of God's kind of work of cleansing. Now, how many, how many jars of water did they, did they pour? Anybody catch that? Four jars. And how many times were they filled and poured out? Okay, what's four times three? Twelve. We're back to that wonderful number twelve again, representing that cleansing over all of the nation. Every tribe matters. Every people matters. And it could very well be that, you know, here's Elijah presenting a washed and cleansed Israel for consecration to the Lord. Now, this trench that I said isn't, isn't really very deep, but I just, I just love this picture of you know, this nation now just surrounded by the cleansing work of God in their life. It's a, it's a beautiful picture how God is, how Elijah is just setting up this whole thing up before the Lord. That's the grace of God. And then, as Elijah prayed, what happens? Boom! Fire from heaven. And it consumes everything. I mean, God accepts the sacrifice, but his fire also consumed the wood, the stones, the dust, the water... All of it. <laughs> I think I would love to have been there, but I'm not so sure. Because it would have been a terrifying moment. How many things? The sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, and the water. How many is that? We talked last week about five is often considered the number of grace. 
Again, it's a picture of God's grace that accepts the sacrifice and consumes it all and even destroys the very structure of religion that we count on to make us righteous. And the people respond. The people respond in repentance. They fall down and they they cry out, the Lord is God. But I want you to catch the difference between how things work with the Baal prophets and these guys. The Baal prophets dance around and they shout and they cut themselves and they get no response. For all their religious frenzy and religious activity, no response. Elijah, Elijah prayed. God showed his approval by accepting the sacrifice. And only then did God, did the people cry out to God. There's a, I want you to notice that progression. It's not up to us to get God to respond with grace. It's up to us to respond to God's grace that he's already demonstrated. My question is this. Will God's grace move you to repentance? Will God's grace move you to repentance? Romans chapter 2 verse 4. It's the Apostle Paul and he's talking about God's work. And he says it this way. Can't you see that his, that's God's, can't you see that God's kindness is is intended to turn you from your sin? See, sometimes we think we have to repent to experience grace. We have to repent to experience kindness. But it doesn't work that way. It's not until you're ready to accept God's grace and kindness that you'll even be able to repent. Otherwise, it would be our effort again, wouldn't it? Otherwise, it would be our religious work. That somehow got God's response. It doesn't work that way. God's the initiator of it all. God isn't kind because we repent. We repent because God is kind. That's the good news. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to somehow prove to God that, that, that you're going to be good enough for Him. He says, I'm pouring it out on you. I'm pouring it out. I've, I've created the means. Now it's up to us to simply respond in repentance. We can only repent after we've received grace. And we can only receive it because God has accepted the sacrifice for our sin. Jesus Christ, given on the cross, the complete and full sacrifice is, so, is completely enough for anything we've done, will do, have done, thought about doing. Right? All those things you regret or, or, or have remorse for, those things that have been done to you, all of it is consumed. That, that consumption at Carmel was complete and total. That's a foreshadowing of what Christ did on the cross. It applies to our own lives too. How we, how we treat other people. Do we extend grace and kindness so that they may respond? Or do we wait for people to behave themselves and then be kind? Our kids, our coworkers, our, our friends. Let's not expect people to, to turn to God and then find grace. Let's, let's be like God. Let's show kindness and show God's grace. So that people can respond. Elijah really got it. He, he, his prayer in verse 37 is, it goes like this. Oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Elijah understood that, that religion cannot, will not, does not give life. In extreme cases such as these Baal worshippers, religion can actually be physically destructive. It actually can destroy life. Same is true even today with some religions and some anti-religions which embrace terror and violence and abortion and genocide. Things that are life-destroying. It's not God's way. God ended religion and He ended it in Jesus. He wants friendship with you. That's what Elijah understood. That 
That these people would know you. That's a relationship with God. God God offers relationship even to those who defy Him in rebellion and those who have defiled themselves in rebellion and sin. Such good news. It's such good news, you guys. You You can't expect that you can in any way get God's favor by being a good person. It doesn't work. God's already extended His love and His kindness to you. We sang it a bunch this morning. So He says, respond. I got one last question for you. Do you choose religion or relationship? See, maybe these people just figured God was one of a few good options. Sometimes we do the same thing. We might tell ourselves, well, as long as I just go to church and put a little something in the offering and help out once in a while, you know, I'll be good. God will be happy with that. How, how could that make God happy? You understand, God is already satisfied because of what Jesus did on the cross. But we miss it. We miss it. That God doesn't want your religious behavior. That's not what He's after. He wants you. He wants all of you. He wants your heart. He wants you on His side of the fence. It's not a religious side. He's not interested in just half your heart. What good is half a heart? You can't do anything with a half heart. Well, you know the, the term half-hearted? No, it's just a half-hearted attempt. What happens to teachers when your students put in a half-hearted attempt? <laughs> they don't pass. Half heart's no good. He's not interested in half your heart. He wants your whole heart. Will you trust him with that? Not, not your sacrifices or your good behavior. He wants you and he sets the choices before you. Religion or relationship. That's the challenge, I think, from Elijah today as he confronted those prophets. What will it be? What will it be? What side of the fence are we going to be on? Will, will we keep wavering or will we follow God? Do you need some help getting your altar repaired? Get some people around you. They'll help you do that. Let's take some time to pray together. Lord, I am really grateful that you've got this awesome story, this awesome account in your word. I think that that place is there, that we could go there and visit, we could stand on that hill, but God, what you've done is, is sufficient. We don't even have to go there to experience your grace. You make it available to us right here, right now. Lord, help us to understand that, to grab hold of that, that we can only respond to you because you've already made the way. We sang it in that song. You, you tore the veil that separates us from you. You ripped that curtain apart and you made a way for us to know you by, by trusting Jesus. I thank you for that. God, forgive us for wavering and we, we do it in some, some measure every day. I do, Lord. Lord. Lord, we don't want to do that. We want to choose you. Thank you for that challenge, Lord. Just thank you. Church is... Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I just can't let you go without, without just giving this opportunity. If you do not know Jesus as your personal Savior today, if you've never responded to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity. Would you just, if that's you, you're saying, I want to give my life to Christ, could you just raise your hand and we'll pray together afterwards? You can just talk to me afterwards too, or the prayer team. All right. For the rest of us, I think the challenge is, how are we doing? Are we wavering? Do we have a, do we have a place of worship? Do we have the means of worship in our life? Are we, are we trusting in, in the kindness of God so that we respond to that? 
God, I thank you so much for your word. Let it make its way deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.